What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Joshua. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Pat. And this is Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to the classic Doctor Who series, and occasionally we'll talk about the new series, too. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> this is our 50th episode. I mean, it's our yeah. 50th regular episode. We've done yeah. some mini shows. We've done some irregular episodes. <laughs> Very some, irregular. Yeah, some special interviews. So maybe we're up to 60-some episodes, but still 50 is a milestone. And, uh, we're really... If it was a comic, it'd be a double-size issue. <laughs> really Don't expect that much from us. Yeah. <laughs> Written by Roy Thomas. Yes. <laughs> As always, we begin our podcast with round one temporal grace and this is something that we like to do where we talk positively about doctor who something that excites us in the world of doctor who and we've all agreed to talk about the same thing since oh this is our first recording since they've announced a brand new doctor who is of course jodie whittaker the 13th doctor there's something a little different about this one (laughs) (laughs) i can't put my finger on it I mean, she's, uh, you know, not a very well-known actor. She's been in a couple of genre films. Uh, she's gotten fairly good uh, reviews. So I think she's, you know, kind of right in the area of old doctors. You know, kind of known, yeah. known enough to you know, get on the radar, but not a famous person. I have to admit, I've, I've not seen uh, Jodie Whittaker in, in anything. Have you not seen uh, Attack I, the Block? I, oh, I have seen Attack the Block. I, I don't recall her part in that at all. She but. was the woman in Attack the Block. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while. I can't I can't really remember characters in it that are the kids. Yeah. But I, I'm quite excited about Jodie Whittaker. I'm much more trepidatious about Chris Chibnall. I have no idea what kind of tone or direction he's going to go for. Well, she worked with him on Broadchurch. Yes. Too. I think she was really good in Broadchurch. Okay. I mean, Broadchurch's strength was the performances, and mm-hmm. she was one of the really great actors in that show. Even in the third series, which was just boring as all get out, <laughs> her performance was entertaining. I'm super psyched about the female doctor, yeah. particularly in contrast to Chibnall, because I am also very skeptical about him, and this suddenly yeah. made, oh, something's going to be interesting about yeah, I just this. This, I, is, this is a new way to look at the series, no matter what Chibnall does with yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if he if he's goes for... I, I'm slightly worried he might want to do a more comic kind of tone, because I think that would like a weird introduction for a female doctor. Comic like Broadchurch. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> oh, here's another dead kid on the beach. Back in the TARDIS. Waka waka. <laughs> but uh, like a, a particularly satirical later fourth doctor type story. I, I hope they go for a fairly fun doctor this time. 
Not not that I don't think whoa, Peter, whoa, whoa, not that I don't off. think not that I don't think Peter Capaldi was fun or but I just yeah, I, I, I was such a drag. You know, I, I hope they don't do a mopey thing. I'm gonna guess they're not gonna do a mopey Jody Whitaker at least right out the gate. They might have to earn the mopiness. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, I I was goofing that there's nothing different about her than there are <laughs> for other doctors, but obviously the fact that she's a woman is extremely different, and uh, that comes with a certain set of expectations. Many are good and many are bad, and um, whatever you do is going to please or displease somebody. The fact of her being cast as a woman doctor is already as well expressed on the internet as as pissed off exactly the right people, the people that I would the people who should be who should be pissed (laughs) off about uh, the people who deserve it. Yeah, about a woman doctor. I still think that that's the minority because when I tried to find negative things, all they were were people who were excited about it reposting the same handful of negative things from all. Yeah, no, I so they are augmenting the voices of negativity. And honestly, I, yeah, I, I'm I agree. a pretty I negative am. guy. Say they are <laughs> we know, we know. the negativity. Uh, I do agree with you, Josh. I think. Well, I don't know what percentage. I mean, no one could ever evaluate what percentage good, mm-hmm. bad, and different uh, this news is going to uh, going to produce. But I think, you know, generally speaking, Doctor Who fandom might be a bit more accepting of change, mm-hmm. a bit more broad-minded in terms of diversity than mm. other... And I think it's an age thing, too. I think new series fans are going to be super into it. Mm-hmm. I think even when I interviewed Wendy Padbury, she was skeptical about the idea of a female doctor. The fans in the room kind of turned on her. I had to quickly move to other questions because I was afraid it was going to get ugly. And, you know, so I think it's that age thing. And I think yeah. like, poor Peter Davison, I think, got really caught up in some ugly internet stuff. He didn't deserve he, the, his the backlash that he, he got. He didn't were deserve the backlash, but... Totally he, honest and utterly fair. He was one man representing his yeah. his initial feelings that I thought were really reasonable, and everyone he, took it as a chance to up themselves by ripping on Peter Davis. He, he's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, I recall him in the past saying things like, no, no, the doctor has to be male. But I think it's uh, but, a really reasonable thing to say, like, oh, wow, I was drawn to this character as a young male because he was unlike any other male mm-hmm. heroes out there. It's certainly yeah. why I was drawn to him as a kid, because yeah. that was one of the things that really interested me about the show. There was no one else other than maybe, you know, Columbo, which you talked about. <laughs> it was this sort of eccentric, not non-masculine, but not traditionally masculine male hero, a later Dale Cooper. Those are like the three really formative hero characters I can think of for me. And to just say, oh, that's too bad. But for for boys, I think that's a perfectly reasonable off-the-cuff response. Well, I think so, too. I, in, in England, Doctor Who has a different sort of position than it does here. There's uh, a strong LGBT component to British fandom that I, well, I suppose is present in America, but I wasn't consciously aware of it. But I was more like you, like, oh, I'm a nerdy outsider kind of boy, and I identify with this, uh, this character who's um, a trickster and a smart person, uses violence only as the last resort. So I think you, you kind of have a proprietary idea mm-hmm. when you have that. Um, but the entire culture has moved on since we were kids. You know, even in just the last five, six years, the idea of gay marriage has become a much more broadly accepted I, kind of thing, all to, all to the good as far oh as yeah, I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, still stunning to me how, how much change there's been in that area. I mean, things can happen very rapidly. Years. I mean, I, I suppose if, if, if round about the fifth or sixth Doctor era, if, like, they announced that the next Doctor was going to be a woman, I, I have to be honest and assume at that point I probably would have been like, oh, God, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and then I grew up. 
<laughs> but, it, it was even a conversation at that time. Tom Baker, it's, it, it was essentially yeah. a joke. He, he just kind of dropped a little bomb into mm-hmm. the press and, well, maybe I'll be replaced by a woman, whatever, which I'm sure had a, a certain amount of period sexism to it or whatever. But it was taken up by John Nathan Turner enough to generate a certain number of headlines. Well, oh, I remember maybe, a whole article, yeah. many articles about it in Doctor Who magazine mm-hmm. in the late 80s. Well, yeah, there was a big rumor about Joanna Lumley was going to be the doctor. I still love to do it from what I could hear. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to Peter Davison, I think, well, first, I don't think he was particular, being particularly sexist. He was just being emotionally honest. For, it was like, this is going to be challenging for me to get over. Um, he didn't say that it was a bad idea or it was something that shouldn't happen. And so he was unfairly attacked, I, w- I would say, for that. Hopefully we can move beyond that. And Yes, hopefully he will come back to his online quips and presence that is very entertaining to have. But in honor of him, I hope to be really emotionally honest about watching The Female Doctor because I think it's really interesting. I think it will, it will reflect a lot of possible biases, putting yourself in the place of other people, because this will be, for me, the first time where there's an actress who I find really appealing. Mm-hmm. I find her attractive. I love that accent, her whole presence, and everything, and that'll be the, probably the first time that I've ever watched Doctor Who and went, the Doctor's kind of attractive. <laughs> and, that's, and that's not new to other people, but it'll, yeah, be, a, yeah. it'll be a weird thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I may need to talk through that with you guys. Yeah, I just... Okay, I let, just me get, let me get my fan... Can you turn off the recorder? Let me get my fan out here, Josh. I just, yeah, I, I just really hope, like in the in the in the first full uh, Jodie Whittaker episode, that they don't do like a bunch of weird things. Like, what are these things in front of my body? Oh, they're breasts. Oh, no. by the interviews yeah, I've I hope heard, they don't her, do things like that. If I'm they guessing tried it, no. <laughs> I think she would nix it based on the stuff I've heard her say about mm-hmm. the role. And I, I think you've got a good performer. You know, a year her. ago I would have said, well, Calvin, we're so far beyond that as a culture. That <laughs> could not possibly happen. But uh, obviously that's not true. Yeah. So, uh, okay. They already did that joke with the master in The Curse of Fatal Death. <laughs> so uh, in the interest of not repeating well, themselves. Moffat made someone. the same joke again in the last Capaldi episode. Uh, oh, my God, he did, the, didn't he? The, different tips con- on bras. Different he, yeah. construction <laughs> yeah, now it's because different. it's more ironic. Yes. You know, it, well, yeah, the idea of irony and self-repeating is yeah. uh, a special topics Dalek question for another day. But <laughs> um, well, we've rambled on long enough, oh, and yeah. I'm sure everybody who's interested in hearing about Jodie Whittaker has already read tons of about it. Uh, the only thing that I want to add before we leave is that did you guys know that there was a book of Doctor Who poetry that was illustrated by Russell T. Davies? No. Did you? Okay, no, nor did I because the world of poetry is a little bit outside my ken and uh, the world of Russell T. Davies also. But anyway, a collection of Time Lord verse called Now We Are 600 which is very funny um, <laughs> by someone named James Goss I don't know him. I was illustrated by Russell T. Davies and apparently he seated in Illustrated, yes. Seated huh. um, in secret Indications that the 13th Doctor was going to be a woman. Oh, because he he, knew ahead of time. Yeah, because he he didn't know who was going to be cast, but he Mm -hmm. knew that uh, they were actively looking for a woman. So there's a picture here, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes, of Peter Capaldi kind of smirking outside the TARDIS that has a uh, female-shaped mannequin inside it. (laughs) And there's a a mysterious Doctor. You don't know who this Doctor is in a swirly cloak with a question mark over her face, but her hands are very feminine and her boots are very feminine and there's a 13 mysteriously integrated yeah. into the swirl of the cloak uh, we'll link to that in the show notes so I guess Russell T. Davies is still a thing <laughs> 
He's a noun. <laughs> Welcome, Jody Whitaker. We look forward to talking about you on our podcast. <laughs> we do. We do. Absolutely. Okay, next up, we're uh, going back to a segment we haven't done a whole lot of before. Uh, this is Silence in the Library, uh, where we discuss uh, printed material with Doctor Who, and this time we're going to be discussing Weapons of Past Destruction, which is the first collection of Ninth Doctor comic stories from Titan Publishing. Uh, it was written by uh, Kevin Scott. And the artist is Blair Shedd and Rachel Stott, with colorists uh, Blair Shedd and Anang Setyawan. So, uh, what did we think about this one, guys? So, I liked it myself. So, so I haven't read many... He hasn't read this. <laughs> I, I, I never read this. I don't know what you're talking the about. The pictures Calvin. are really pretty. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It looks like yeah, it's okay. No, I did read it. There aren't that many non-televised Ninth Doctor stories that I'm familiar with. Right. There are no audios, of course. Uh, I have a novel on my shelf. There are a few of those. I haven't read it yet. And I, I have read one or two IDW comic collections that are multi-Doctor stories. Mm. So the first thing to say about this is that this is one of the few non-televised stories that tries to capture Christopher Eccleston's Doctor. Yes. And so we can discuss whether we think that that was successful or not. I thought it was sort of mixed. I was rather impressed how well it captured him. Defend your position. Like, his various witty comebacks just seemed very Ninth Doctor era type witty comebacks to me. I, I, that's the best way I can put it. It's a sort of gestalt tone where he seems to fit in with the era of the Ninth Doctor. Yeah. And so the things that he says seems kind of Ninth Doctor-y. Well, you know, he, he'll make goofy statements, and then he'll be, like, very angry and very determined. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Calvin here. I thought that this really nailed the Ninth Doctor's voice, which I think is a little tricky, since he only had his 13 mm -hmm. episodes on TV. He has a lot of the old Doctor about him, that he is superior, that he knows best, but he is also kind of the first working class pop culture doctor he makes yeah. references to things that the classic doctors never would have and yes this is the influence of russell t davies but i think you see that integration in here uh, lines like when he has this whole speech about i never face the facts a bunch of stuff about facts i am so over facts which sounds very much like a russell t davies type of Ninth Doctor speech to me, good, bad, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I have such a fond memory of Eccleston. Even things that might have initially rubbed me the wrong way about his characterization, I find kind of warm and fuzzy represented here. And the tone between Rose and the Doctor and Jack all feels right for those few episodes of the TV show we actually saw them together. So this is kind of that big finish realm where they're mining something that there was just a very little bit of in the original series and expanding on it greatly. Well, this used to be a very common form of Doctor Who storytelling generally. They would identify some time period or continuity question or unexplored emotional area of Doctor Who and explicitly try to fill in the gaps or the missing pieces. And, uh, you know, for however I might think this is more or less successful, I'm glad that this sort of thing exists because uh, this is really fundamentally part of what Doctor Who is. It's looking back on what was there and expanding out the missing pieces, the things that we thought that should have been there at the time. And 
that first episode of Chris Eccleston's, as good as I thought much of it was, there was so much more that I, I hoped for. So um, they never went anywhere other than Earth, for example, mm-hmm. or uh, a space station above Earth. But now here, it's all over the universe, all over time, and it's also a story that can only be told after Day of the Doctor, after Torchwood, because it explicitly brings in those pieces, those elements of the Doctor's and Jack's character that we know are going to occur, or from the Doctor's point of view have occurred, but we just don't know about yet, and uses them to add emotional weight to the story. And this is really a lot of what Doctor Who is. It's not really a linear story. It's we're now also telling stories about what should or could have been there in Doctor Who history. Like a lot of the big finish stories and short stories that try to fill in these gaps, it kind of overfills them, as in it doesn't sit quite right with the TV continuity and that this has an almost closure quality uh, with the Ninth Doctor at the end when he saves this race, the Unin, from becoming Time Lords and becoming as corrupt and destructive as the Time Lords did in the Time War. And you can see it as a temporary little bit of happiness that fits with the next televised episode in which the three of them are together seeming to have a ball. Yeah, in a way I would have liked to have seen just a normal BS story with the three of them that wasn't full of these universe-exploding ideas. Just like, well, let's go and let's save some planet of swamp creatures from some other race of swamp creatures, and that will establish the fact that you guys are all buddy-buddy and you know each other now Mm -hmm. instead of a story which, I guess for our listeners, they might not know what the story is, but it has to do with the fall of Gallifrey and a new race of people taking over the roles of the Time Lords and a completely separate new race of people taking on the roles of the Daleks and old Gallifreyan weaponry being sold in an arms bazaar. And like, oh, it's just crazy pants, you guys. <laughs> I, whoa, it's big. It's a lot in five issues, yeah. I think part of it is it was a mini-series. It was before the Ninth Doctor had a regular, ongoing monthly series. And so I think they're trying to sell this, see if there's any interest in Ninth Doctor story. So they started really big. Yeah. I will confess that I became confused about this fact and read the first five issues of the Ninth Doctor's monthly series before realizing, wait, there's no real Gallifreyan artifacts in here. And this stops in the middle of a story. The hell and is Kelvin talking about? <laughs> this is crazy. And so I went back and figured out I was reading the wrong one through five of the Ninth Doctor comics. However, to Pat's point, these are smaller stories, so you might you might enjoy those starting with his ongoing series. I really like those, too. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I just got to say, you guys, the, the photorealistic covers, they just raise expectations too high for the interior art. This is what Vertigo comics used to do. That's, that's an old, day. old comics yeah. thing. Glenn yeah. Fabry would do the stuff for Preacher, or Dave McKean would do the stuff for Sandman, and you're like, look at those remarkable, beautiful covers, and then you open up and you're like, eh. <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but I, I don't mean to disparage the interior artists, but the, this image of Chris Eccleston that's on the cover of Weapons of Past Destruction is, oh, yes, that's excellent. That's mm-hmm. exactly him. And then inside, it's, you know, frequently embarrassing. So, Really? I, I'd rather like the art in here. I'm, I'm going to agree with Kelvin again. Is this a record? Is it? Is it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like I'm feeling very isolated here. You <laughs> no one ever really talks about the coloring. 
mm-hmm. comics, but I, I I like the coloring in it. It's it's very pastel. It's softer colors, but it's not like washed out mm-hmm. or whatever. It's it's like an approach to coloring you don't see very. I like the occasional silhouette panels mm-hmm. where they just have a, a solid color on black. It's almost one a page. They they do it fairly frequently. I felt the likenesses to the actors were very strong without yeah. having that quality of, oh, there's another publicity still, while still keeping a stylized, simplified look without it entering the world of caricatures either. I mean, these are all the baggage of these comic books that are based on live-action TV shows. It's, it's always a problem. Yeah, I get it. But without getting the knives out... Ching, 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 <laughs> Get the knives out. It's a podcast. I, I do prefer the old Doctor Who magazine, Dave Gibbons art, or John. Oh Ridgeway, yeah, if, if which we're is, talking about that, so. those days will never come back. Pat, I agree with you. Those <laughs> yeah, were no, the it's glory no. days of uh, no. yeah, yeah. There are still artists no, no out there really that could do it. In being, I don't know if experimental is the right word, but there's very, very few comics artists and comics publishers willing to do more. Abstractish kind of thing. Well, I'm sure it's a commercial thing because, yeah. you know, when you have Doctor Who magazine, you have a captive audience mm-hmm. who's going to have, you're going to have a certain amount of flexibility in the art styles that you're going to present. It was also the 1980s. Experimental uh, time in comic books. Yeah, people were, were prepped to do that kind of thing, but stuff like. These new Doctor Who comics are based so fundamentally on the new series that people expect something that's going to be kind of realistic. It's mm-hmm. going to essentially look like a realist version of Chris Eccleston. Well, okay, I don't want to go. I don't want to go too much down this. Uh, I, think, I just think artistically, there you could expand the parameters a little bit more than trying to do this. I agree. I think I was comparing it to the artwork from the first five issues of the ongoing series, which I accidentally read beforehand, in which it fell into the trap of. Most of the time it was this very cartoon, stylized version of these characters. And then every six panels, it was this attempt at photorealism from a publicity shot. And then it would go back to these very simplified caricatures. Oh, that sounds, so that was really jarring. That, that sounds terrible. Yeah. yeah. And so this, was I felt, was really consistent in style, like it or not. It's very from panel to panel all the way through. It's strongly what it is choosing to do. <laughs> Can we say that in the most impartial way possible? <laughs> it is strongly what it is choosing to do. <laughs> Josh Scrimshaw. Trying to be fair here. 2017. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, so I, that digression was a little sour for me, but I, I liked the story. Yeah. I, I liked the presentation of it. Yeah. Um, it maybe bit off a little bit more than it could chew in the time allowed, but I assume that the actor, or the actor, <laughs> the author only had five issues to do it in, so, okay. I like the squid guy. Glom, the squid guy, was pretty fun. Squidward. <laughs> yeah, Rose calls him Squidward. The, the only, like, micro-complaint I have about it is, like, I don't get why the Unan are centaurs. Because it's just, fun. They are literally, fun. They, are, they are physically literally centaurs. They have, like, human torsos and, and horse bodies. And that's just what... They are, I guess, and I, I don't know, I found that a little too... Equinocentric? Equinocentric. <laughs> like, I don't just sort of oddly unimaginative in some weird way, I don't know, but... Yeah, there's uh, some good imagination on display in other parts of the comic. Oh, yeah. The, the idea that in the vacuum left over by the Time Lord that there are roles that would be filled by... Uh, the Time Lords and the Daleks would be filled by new mm-hmm. kinds of alien races that aren't the same, but they have to fill those kind of levels of political 
stability. It's a little like the season 10 um, Peter Capaldi episode where, you know, just give humans enough time and they're going to create Cybermen. They're just going to do that. It's like it's a natural law that these uh, that these sorts of things have to happen. So I, I appreciated that. But you're right, you know, the science fictional imagination, especially when you're on a deadline, might run to like, oh, these are cat people or these are horse, yeah. horse people or these are werewolves or I don't know. I, I think it did a really good job of creating cliffhanger stuff. Oh, they kept getting dropped into the vortex. And, they keep getting and dropped destroyed. into the vortex, and they keep thinking, like, oh, no, uh, Rose is irrevocably gone. Nope. Oh, no, Rose is back, but she's, like, teaming up with the evil aliens for some reason. That's another uh, moment where you think, oh, this can only be written after many seasons of yeah. the, the real show because Rose shows up with like a big blaster in her arms mm-hmm. and that's an image from David Tennant's last season yeah. where she mm-hmm. comes and saves Donna uh, it's not something that you would have anticipated yeah. seeing or would have expected from Rose in Chris Eccleston's season. And even small throwaway jokes like the doctor saying he decided to learn to speak horse instead of mastodon yeah. and going on that'll, <laughs> that'll never come in handy you have little jokes like that. I think the dialogue overall is fairly bouncy and clever mm-hmm. and it glides along really nicely. I think the only real clunk for me is they did have to wrap it up really quick. I it thought does, that, it uh, does resolve really fast. Yeah. The Unon had a master-like Terra the Autons change in mm-hmm. his demeanor. You know, Suddenly they're like, oh wait, we're wrong. We're going to give it all up and go to another planet and live peacefully. I, I, I do like how Jack Harkness is sort of the guy who saves the day. I mean, he gets captured by the Unan and he he manages to do the uh, doctory thing of just pointing out a you know logical flaw yeah. in their whole thing. Maybe that's my problem with it is just like I can't believe he would be that persuasive. <laughs> you didn't it's think like, this through? He didn't yeah. he did it without flirting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe that's it. <laughs> Uh, well, we're not yeah, constrained. Be like, do you want to be the front or back of the horse type of joke? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that seems like a fine note to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, my dudes, for segment three, which is a new segment, we're going to call "Listen," or <laughs> as Navi from Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time would say, "Listen." <laughs> Uh, we're going nice to <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the very very first, well, mostly very first mm-hmm. Doctor Who audio release, the 1976 LP, The Pescaton. It is a long play. It's a long <laughs> play. <you> what? <laughs> okay, so some background. This isn't quite the first audio Doctor Who release. There was. Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, which was a version <laughs> of the William Hartness story, The Daleks, narrated by William Russell, who played Ian Chesterton. Mm-hmm. I may have that on a disc somewhere, but that's not what we're listening to. We're listening to the, the first original. The, the first original story. story. It was a double LP with Exploration Earth, which had uh, Tom Baker and Sarah Jane Smith you know, say things like, Look, Sarah, the continents are forming. And look, there are volcanoes, and now there are dinosaurs. And it was a historical thing like that. But this is an actual, honest-to-God Doctor Who adventure called The Pescatons, released in 1976, written by Victor Pemberton. 
Now, yeah. Mr. Pemberton was a script editor on the show during the Second Doctor era. He wrote Fury from the Deep, which we have not talked about on this podcast yet. yet. So we're not deeply into Fury of the Deep lore. Like, we can't really do a whole close reading on it all. But from what I understand, the Pescatons borrows heavily from that story. A definite oceanic themes. <laughs> but there's more, Kelvin. Yes. Fury was itself based on an earlier radio drama written by Victor Pemberton called The Slide for BBC Radio. I have heard The Slide. Starring Roger Delgado. And yes. now, now Josh can probably pick up the idea of what's being transferred from The Slide through Fury through the Pescatons. But, you know, briefly, we know that the evil creature is vulnerable to sound in the Fury as it is in the Pescatons. And uh, the description of the slide that I've read says, The residents of a quiet English village besieged by a sentient mud, <laughs> led by the expert Professor Gomez, battle against it, I assume that's Roger Delgado yep. who plays the Professor Gomez, um... The only thing I'll add before you take over, Josh, is that the sentient mud is also basically the enemy in the Hammer Quatermass clone film X the Unknown yes. with Dean Jager and Liam McKern, which is like a thousand times better than the Pescaton. <laughs> X the Unknown is a, is you a great movie that people should see. Sometime. Totally watch X the Unknown. Yeah. It's really, really good. So it does kind of seem like the guy has one idea, but maybe starting with the slide, Josh, you can uh, say a little bit more about that. Uh, you really said everything about the slide. It is exactly what you said. It's intelligent evil mud uh, attacking people, and they have to figure out, again, that it's sound. And, and it's BBC Radio, so it's it's a higher-budget production, a little more lavish <laughs> in comparison to the Pescatons, which does seem like some BBC exec just said, Look, we got five sounds. <laughs> Only they'd have a British accent. We, we've got water lapping, we got screams, we got a baby crying. <laughs> Work it all in there somehow. Yeah, the gratuitous baby crying part was just like... That has to be... I we're jumping around, but as long as I brought it up, my favorite thing in here. The baby? <laughs> Not because it's great, but because... Baby's crying is goddamn So to get <laughs> listeners who haven't recently immersed themselves in the Pescatons... The Pescaton is attacking London, one of many Pescatons, mm -hmm. and Sarah Jane finds a baby um, that has been abandoned by whoever is in care of this baby, mother, father, and Sarah, uncharacteristically, is really freaking annoyed by this baby, that she had to find this baby, <laughs> that she has to care for it. She refers to the baby as it. And mm -hmm. she's trying to have a conversation uh, with the doctor, and the baby starts crying again. And she says, be quiet, baby, which is my favorite line. I'll be quiet, baby. I, th I think we've all had moments when we just literally want to say, be quiet, baby. And, <laughs> right. and, they, and that works. Not usually yeah. in the middle of a horrifying uh, alien no, invasion. No. But. So, you guys, um, first of all, it's terrible. It's yeah. it's just not a it's not a good Doctor Who story. No, but it's, it's a historical I, curiosity. Yeah, I want to say that I can't really be as hard on the story as I would a normal thing because it's clearly written for children. It really is, and it seems by children. Mm. Um, but it's <laughs> it's a lot like the filler stories in the Doctor Who annuals. 
Which is a little strange, considering Victor Pembleton was closely associated with Doctor Who. You would think that he would know a little bit about the concept, but here it, it's pitched so so low that it's it's almost insulting. Yet it's totally off, yeah. Too because the Doctor is pretty pro genocide here. Oh God! We have yeah. this huge flashback where the Pescatons ask him to save them to help them get off this dying world and, he and he's says, just like no you're evil <laughs> no, you're, I won't do that yeah, you're evil die <laughs> but we don't see much evidence of that we see evidence of them being evil after he won't save them but it really seems to heavily imply that had the doctor just found another planet for them like he does all the time or offers at least all the time in the classic series he wouldn't have had this problem and he, while it's aimed at kids, there's some real horror here. Those mm-hmm. screams of people being attacked and eaten by yeah. pescatons are pretty horrific. By, by, by shark men monsters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of graphic. Yeah, let's put a pin in that, too, because I want to talk about uh, the sound design. But we'll, let's talk about the narrative first. There's not a whole lot of doctoriness in this story. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a present-day story, and it is just monsters show up and attack people. And the Doctor doesn't do a lot of what I would think of as super brilliant deduction. Although it's kind of interesting to see him in a that he puts on a diving suit and just goes into ocean. That's certainly nothing you would see uh, on the series. You would not have seen it on the series up to that point. Yeah. You're right. There's lots of uncharacteristic things. Uh, starting with the fact that it's narrated in the first person by the Doctor. So he's saying things like, I was more scared than I'd ever been in my life, which is not an insight into the doctor's psychology that we ever really get. Mm-hmm. There are elements of uh, kind of a self-lampooning thing, like, I always play my piccolo when I'm nervous. <laughs> the piccolo is a strange thing. It seems to be kind of a holdover from the second doctor's yeah. recorder. Yeah, that, that was a very random thing. Like, it turns out the pescatons are vulnerable to high-pitched sounds. So, well, we got to give the doctor something that generates high-pitched sounds, <laughs> right. regardless of whether it makes any sense. He with doesn't his... have Victoria around, so yeah. he's going to, I guess he's got <laughs> he's a piccolo. All right. You got Victoria and Mel to just scream at him. And, you know. He sings, hello, Dolly. No, it's, it's very not <laughs> Doctor Who-y very mm-hmm. much. I will say it. it's a very elementary story, but in a, in a weird way, I was kind of fond of it, I guess just because... This was made in, like, 74, 75? 76. 76. Well, released in 76, so... Uh, but, you know, it's that much farther in the past from the big Finnish audios or whatever that, that it really does, in many ways, to me, feel like an old-time radio adventure story. It feels more like that than Doctor Who. You know, it, it's got this feel like you're just kind of sitting down with someone in front of a fireplace and enjoying a snifter of brandy and says, well, let me tell you about this strange adventure I had once. Blah, 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 blah. Well, it's kind of an oddball mix of that and fully staged stuff because they have to to get it all into 46 minutes, I think. Um, And so you have this fully staged, spooky opening scene where the doctor and Sarah land on the beach and they're like, oh, what's going on? There's no one around. Here's this weird, creepy thing, which I thought was very effective. Mm -hmm. It's essentially the same opening scene as Enemy of the World and Genesis of the Daleks, but it still worked pretty well. But then once they 
move out out of that area, then it's just Tom narrating, I met this professor, he told me these ships were missing, now I'm underwater in a diving suit, and hey, here's a pescaton, now it's rampaging through a zoo, and now there's an invasion, but oh, okay, now I'm going to go and tell you about the time that I was on the planet of the pescatons, and that's slightly staged. Oh, and now here, uh, we're back, and it's War of the Worlds, and <laughs> uh, Liz Sladen turns up long enough for us to rescue a baby, and then I... Uh, going to kill the bad guy and we're out. It was very clear that they were only going to pay three actors. Yeah. And so every time there was a reason for him, or maybe even if there wasn't a reason for him to interact with Sarah, then it would be done as scene. Everything else would be done as summary because they weren't going to hire someone to be the soldiers or the professor. And in that way, it reminded me of some of the big Finnish companion chronicles that okay. are yeah. basically prose stories with one or two actors that will occasionally act out certain scenes as opposed to old time radio where it would be like fully dramatized and i think you're right the most effective thing in the entire audio is that first scene it's very atmospheric and i will say this tom baker just has an amazing voice we all know it but every time oh yeah you you hear him just speaking it is just so beautiful i just really is i I do admit like the the accelerated nature of the beginning caught me a little off guard. I missed somehow, like, my attention wandered for a bit, and I, I missed the point where the doctor puts on a diving suit. Yeah. So I'm just like, wait, he's just jumping into the ocean and sinking to the bottom. They don't tell you. I went, I mm-hmm. actually. Is that, is that I like rewound. another Time Lord ability? And then, like... and then halfway through the description, he reveals that he's wearing a diving suit, but he doesn't yeah. tell you at the top. So I was yeah. like, is he holding his breath? Uh, is he? I assumed it was some time war physiology yeah, thing. Me too. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sloppiness. It's it's just yeah. they assume that the kids aren't going to care or mind, or they'll listen to it several times and they'll understand. Speaking of aimed at kids, yeah. it's fish people, and they're named <laughs> you know Pescatons in the constellation of Pisces. Pisces. Like, so, so there's probably a planet in the constellation Virgo where no one ever has sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or like. <laughs> The planet Cassiopeia. This is the planet of the raging queens. I don't know. <laughs> so I can't shake the idea before we, we close this out that this entire LP was designed to maximally annoy the parents of the kid <laughs> who is playing this on his LP player because, oh, wow, the sound design is just through the roof. The the piccolo is super annoying. The screams of the people at the zoo are legitimately hair raising. I'm listening to it. I'm like, holy, holy cow! <laughs> poor woman. Oh, jeez, is a terrifying thing. Um, the sonic weapon the doctor uses at the end is totally ear piercing, and it keeps going. It goes into like yeah, the, his his goodbye at the end, and it just like did and, someone and, forget and the whole to weird thing of like it just pause. Oh, please just go for it a few more inches. <laughs> Because, like, the sound won't carry... What? I don't get that. But anyway. They're really leaning into the idea of this is just sound, and mm. so we're going to deploy these sounds mm. in the most powerful way possible, even though mm-hmm. they, <laughs> I, I wish they wouldn't, because it's <laughs> terrible. Uh, although my favorite one is, of course, the uh, there's the moment where the doctor is explaining to Sarah that all of these frightened people are whispering the name of the pescatons in soft tones because they know that they're going to invade at any moment. That was a nice and bit all of the people design, in the though. background are like, the pescatons, the pescatons, the pescatons. It felt like a nice bit be... of like subtlety at this point. 
Yeah. Pescatons. Like that wouldn't be creepy or something. <laughs> Random people. Pescatons. But it, it was interesting to figure out when things were kind of diegetic or non-diegetic like that. I don't think that was obviously supposed to be real people on London Whispering, but because nothing else in the entire <laughs> audio sounded like that, it was, it was weird. So there's a reason that there was almost 10 years before anyone did another Doctor Who audio. I think maybe the next one was Slip Back during the I hiatus. Think so. I think so. I think you're right. Before, uh, that, that came before uh, Sirens time oh yeah and then in the 90s there were the third doctor ghosts of end space radio. and paradise of death yep yeah oh i always think of those as novels uh they were novelized after i think <laughs> okay yeah by, okay i didn't yep, realize originally originally they by Barry were, Letts. Yep. Uh, bbc we'll radio talk about those shows. eventually yeah. i'm sure yeah those are really weird and odd as yeah. well and so a slip back they are really un <laughs> it'd be fun to do all these very unconventional early audios before we get to big- I mean by fun I mean hey, torturous potentially but <laughs> hey it's our podcast <laughs> we can do whatever we want so you guys we don't need to rate the pescatons we don't say have to say thumbs up or thumbs down or whatever so let's not I think <laughs> it's, a, it's a historical it's a curiosity historical curiosity yeah yeah and not much else <laughs> pescatons <laughs> And now round four, the randomizer. Yes, in its infinite wisdom, the randomizer has chosen The Romans by Dennis Spooner, directed by Christopher Barry. It is the fourth episode of season two from 1965. So early. I know. I love The Romans. Yeah, spoiler, I did too. I just, uh, in fact, this is one of my favorite First Doctor adventures. Uh, Kelvin is conspicuously silent. It's okay. <laughs> I knew if there would be an it's okay voice in here, it would be Kelvin. It, I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't like, wow, genius. But it's because you hate comedy. No. <laughs> it when, has when a real broad comedy that I thought yeah, would appeal to you. No, it, it's cool. It's just that when you're doing broad farce, timing is fantastically important. And given the peculiarities of very low-budget, one-take-and-done BBC shooting of the time, you can't really get that. I hear you. You almost have to yeah. do this sort of comedy forgiveness that you do for special effects. Kind right? of, Because yes. if they had more time to rehearse it, uh, a different director, perhaps, mm-hmm. where you can have some of these cuts a little cleaner. Mm-hmm. Editing in film comedy is a big deal. Yeah. However, I gave it that same sort of pass, that these were like almost like a stage performance, and the camera almost yeah. like wasn't really part of the action. Maybe it could have done a little more. I mean, there's a bit of like kind of the door-slamming farce thing when Nero's chasing Barbara around. <laughs> a little bit? A little bit. Well, I, 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 <laughs> I, I think it could have been more frenetic than, than it was, but... I don't know. Well, speaking for myself, I I didn't find it particularly hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, But what I did like about it is the sort of relaxed comfortableness Mm -hmm. of especially that first episode where Mm -hmm. they're, you know, the TARDIS falls off the cliff. (laughs) <laughs> and then the four of them have clearly just been hanging out. I just like, like, there's this empty villa that just this, kills me. Like, oh, let's, just, let's just live yeah. here for a Doesn't while. Doesn't have any servants or slaves. Like, literally, they've just been hanging out there for a month. Yeah, I don't they know. They say, like, they've been there for a month. And just like, oh, maybe we should actually get off our butts. <laughs> maybe go see Rome or something. 
<laughs> well, that's what I like about it because yeah. at, at, at that point, there's, uh, the cast is so chill mm-hmm. with each other. Now, it would have been even better if Carol Ann Ford had still been around. Now, I mean, Vicky is a much better character, a much better mm-hmm. actor, but uh, it would have had, I think, a little bit more of an emotional heft to it if it had been the Doctor and his granddaughter yeah. and Ian and Susan who had been through all these adventures instead of just Vicky who they had just picked up the previous adventure. But overlooking that, they're also calm and yeah. I, I loved Ian and Barbara's flirty relationship. Yes. Um, That's fun. <laughs> the scenes with them alone after the Doctor and Vicky have left before they've been kidnapped What by a the splendid traders. Roman you make. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about as explicit as the flirtation gets, I think, between yeah. those two. It's well, very... right, right at the end, they kind of have like sort of a, almost a tickle fight. I'll thing. show you what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's always really wild to me when, when you see like the first Doctor being physical. Like when he actually beats up that assassin. <laughs> yeah, Tigellus. He's like, oh, I, I forget over. how much I enjoy the gentle art of fisticuffs. You know, like, yeah. what? <laughs> <laughs> the first Doctor? What? <laughs> But Do you my, think the line was really written as the gentle art of fisticuffs? That seemed a little yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, appara- his way apparently this that was line. an ad lib when he mentions that he taught the mountain mauler of Montana <laughs> all his wrestling moves. Apparently that was an ad lib on, on Hartnell's part. Yeah. But doesn't I, I got I got to admit that's like one of my new weird favorite random <laughs> throwaway things the doctor has done is that he just trained a wrestler. <laughs> I guess the implication being it was like the Old West era, but it could just as easily be some bizarre far future thing. Or there's a planet named Montana or something. I don't know. I'm going to write that in my list of fan fictions to write. Like with the third Doctor hanging out with Chairman Mao. Yeah, yeah. One thing I loved, in contrast to them just lounging and they're in somebody else's house and they're apparently, you know eating their food and wearing their clothes and other yeah, weird things. Yeah. But there's that nice bit when the slavers come to sort of interrogate and, and pay for information from the woman working in the market, where she says that they, they've they been living there for a month and that they sell the produce from the garden to the townsfolks here, and very cheaply, too. They must be fools. So I love that little idea that they're also still, in their relaxation, being kind and generous. They're making money, but they're selling it really cheap. I mean, I guess it's other people's <laughs> garden, <laughs> so maybe it takes a little of that it's out of it. It's run by slaves, Josh. <laughs> right. This is there's ancient a, Rome. There's a remarkable <laughs> quantity of fresh grapes displaying yeah. around. And there's some great old-school comedy structure lines, a lot of almost... Mm. Marx Brothers style dialogue. This is again really early when they're still just lounging around. <laughs> when the doctor calls uh, Ian Chesterfield yeah. and Barbara yeah. corrects him and goes, It's Chesterton. And then the doctor says to Ian, Oh, Barbara's calling you. <laughs> it's just this, <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell how much of that is scripted and how much of that is Hartnell just like, Oh, I can't remember my lines. Well, that felt like Dennis Spooner going, Let's make an explicit joke out of the fact that uh, Hartnell always gets Ian Chesterton's name. Yeah. yeah. And I, I got to admit, like, if you're going to use a comic relief Roman emperor, Nero is the one you kind of got to go with. He is so ridiculous in here. It's uh, Derek Francis, who apparently made his mark in the Carry On film. Yes. Which. Is apparent here. I, I confess I've never seen, but I believe it. Yeah, uh, yeah. he was apparently the uh, first reasonably well-known actor to be on Doctor Who as a guest performer. There's a sort of old-style comedy 
in the there's the scene where oh no don't drink that poisoned wine Nero mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. they all leave and then he gives it to Tigellus <laughs> to slave <laughs> and Tigellus of course has the instant death oh, reaction <laughs> literally, almost literally croaks mm-hmm. falls down and Nero turns to the camera and says I guess, huh? I guess that was true that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> horrible I mean you know yeah. just just between us and this table I think that's despicable and awful but uh, apparently it read as common Back in 1965. Well, I think also what I like about the script is that Spooner leans into Rome for dark comedy, and it's intended to be black comedy, to put this on top of the sort of lighthearted opening and then have them captured and sold as slaves. <laughs> it's it's a very... It's, um, Ian is in Ben-Hur for about ten minutes. <laughs> yes, yes. Forgive me for bringing up this comparison, but it's vaguely similar to the gunfighters. In the sense that it's like everyone's perception of ancient Rome, That's not like actual Also a Dennis Rome. Spinner story. Yeah. yeah. I actually looked this up, and I, I never knew this. Nero was only 30 when he died. Hmm. He, Nero is always portrayed as this, like, old fat guy. <laughs> but he was a young fat guy. You know, he was a young fat guy. And the Great Fire of Rome, that, that sets this as 64 AD. Yep. I mean, it is funny to see Nero chasing Barbara around in this super farce manner, this just like Benny Hill-esque series of chases, you know. But again, on that darkness level, when he finally catches her right before the Empress walks in, it's pretty explicit for Doctor Who. He grabs her on the bed and pulls her on top of him right before his wife walks in. And for Doctor Who in 1965, that's straight up carry on. Yeah. And And it's a sexual assault. (laughs) And Barbara had to endure a lot of these things in her time. They don't don't really do it. It doesn't happen again until Perry, really. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I was going to, to say, I don't recall Barbara being presented as this like lust object for villains. She is though. Um, she uh, although is. it seems you know it seems like that'd be done fairly frequently. It happens in the crusade. Okay. And it happens here and I think there's one or two other places I'd have to check our recordings of earlier podcasts to be sure but uh, she was uh, because it can't be the young girls. Oh that'd be too creepy. Yeah. Well, it's still creepy. Yeah, I mean, it's still, <laughs> this is the perfect It's still pretty horrible creep. and creepy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But this, this is, is the this sweet is, creep spot. This is good old-fashioned, you know, <laughs> creepiness that your grandpa like, thought was funny. Yeah, but, but you're right. It disappears from Doctor Who yeah. until, I think, Perry. Perry I mean, comes I can't, back. I can't think of... It comes I mean, back with a vengeance. No, no one creeps on Sarah Jane or Joe. No. no. But yeah, I mean, there, there, there's things in here like... Ian is a galley slave for five days. <laughs> yes, he's a galley slave. Like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, well, well, geez, where, where is he going to end up? Is he going to be in like Carthage or something? Yeah, that's one thing for a comedy episode. Well, there's like, no Carthage. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> there's for a comedy episode. You really buy if that's the end of episode one or two. I forget when he's in the galley of the ship. They're really screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, she's, Barbara's in the prison about to be sold, and he's a slave on a ship, and the doctor's just goofing off. Except, <laughs> that, except that Nero has that one assistant who does the slave buying who's like some kind of 
He's like the spider Tad- from Game of Thrones. Yeah, Tadius, he's, he's, he's a secret Christian. He's a secret Christian who's like a... quietly freeing slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that old uh, Star Trek original series episode where they all turn, you know, the rebels turn out to be mm. uh, closet Christians. Yeah. Closet Christians. Tavius is a closet Christian. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's goofy, right? Because the entire shape of it is that Ian and Barbara have their own independent stories, mm-hmm. and then the Doctor and Vicky have their own stories. Story, and they don't intersect at all until the end. It's like, oh, okay, we're finally back at this villa that we stole from some <laughs> poor dude who we never meet. Oh, it's time to go. Oh, why are you guys lounging around here for five or six weeks or however long it is? I mean, it's very funny. I mean, it's it's the first Doctor Who parody that mm-hmm. we've seen, right? It's it's not even really parody on Doctor Who. It's well, just it, it's borrowing a, a, a structure from, I don't know, the carry-on movies or whatever sort of French farces that they're basing it on, right? Uh, and then they're importing it into Doctor Who. It's not a parody on the Doctor Who structure per se. Still, I think that it assimilates it very well, uh, more than Kelvin thinks it does, I think. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's goofy, and it relies on the fact of the actors being very comfortable with one another and a competent screenwriter being able to present all these things and incorporate some dark ideas. Mm-hmm. I think and, that, for me, is what makes it, is that there's something to really contrast the supreme silliness. Yeah. Honestly, reminds me, in some ways, of an influence on Robert Sherman's scripts. Uh, I mean, it's not quite as dark as Robert Sherman gets, but you know, you you see that seed of things that you'll see in his uh, big finish audios. Well, two episodes before would be the Dalek invasion of Earth, mm-hmm. and then the interstitial, the rescue where they get Vicky, and then the next one is the Web Planet. Mm-hmm. You kind of broadly conceived of as one of the weirder, dumber less serious Doctor Who stories ever. Yeah, so that's I an mean, eclectic, yeah, stylistically, uh, selection of stories. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the area that it covers between Dalek Invasion of Earth and the Web Planet, see, this is a show that can do it. Not, not too many other shows can, I yeah. think. One thing that I thought was an interesting and odd choice when the Doctor and Vicky have escaped and they're watching Rome burn. And he just Vicky, chuckles and laughs. Yeah, and they even make a point, though, the edit... It goes to him. He's laughing in delight when he realizes, oh, I guess I did give him the idea to burn Rome. And he's laughing, and it fades the doctor's laugh into Nero's maniacal crazy man laughter. That's really <laughs> and, and they do a, a, just a very specific connection between the two yeah. of them. And, there's uh, still a historical debate about like whether the doctor really did that. Well, yeah, whether, <laughs> whether, whether it was like a legitimate accident or if Nero did it deliberately like that. Apparently the thinking was, yeah, yeah, Nero like wanted to build like a new bigger palace and he, he, well, there's no place to put it. And so it's like, fine, burn this section of Rome down. It's impossible to tell because the, yeah. the, the new political regime always just says, oh, those last guys did all these terrible things. Yeah, and the whole of that theory being is that the, the Great Fire of Rome was actually... A reasonable distance away from where Nero built his palace, <laughs> so it doesn't make any. Like, if he's deliberately set this fire, why did he do it over here? You know. But historians for, bitch about it all. For further <laughs> discussion on, on that, you'll have to listen to our Ancient Rome podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but for this, I I love this. One of my favorite first I lo- doctors. Okay. I haven't seen it in about fifteen years, so it was great fun. It's much fun as being sold into slavery and being sexually preyed upon and. The, 
burning of a city can be. <laughs> you like it when they pan over Nero's legs and body oh. in the sauna oh, yeah. in episode three, right? Yeah. Jesus and he almost loses his towel. He's yeah. almost completely shirtless at one point. He's like grabbing for it as he gets up. I know. I'm going to uh. turn, turn on the fans here. <laughs> My goodness, this, you guys. This sounds terrible, but I'm glad it was a four-episode story. I, th- I think if this was like a six or eight episode story, oh, be, it'd be quiet, just like, baby. oh, good God. No. <laughs> Can I also say that the doctor is wrong and that the Romans did use pipes? One of the very first things, this bothered the shit out of me. The very first thing he says is, oh, the, the Romans didn't use pipes. They have aqueducts or whatever. Well, in fact, they used, they had, they, they used pipes all the time. Some of them were made out of clay. The majority of them were made out of lead, and which is like, a was big... Was that before 64? Big God... Because maybe the doctor I, introduced the idea of Well, pipes. thank you, Josh. You but that thank you, Josh, but I did look this up. And okay. uh, even in the reign of Augustus, they were using pipes, um, and they were made out of lead, and that's why they were all murderous sons of bitches. <laughs> well, that's the speculation, right? Because yeah, they all had poisoning. they all had lead poisoning. They knew it, but it was just simply convenient to use lead pipes. <laughs> Comedy gold. Yeah. Hey, the Romans. <laughs> I know. Fellows, for our fifth and final round, we're going to do the death zone. <gasps> but, Josh, calm down. This is going to be a little bit different than our usual death zone because we're going to be talking about one thing and one thing only, which is the novel Doctor Who and the Vortex Crystal, a solo play adventure game by William H. Keith Jr., published by FASA Publishing in 1986. What? Right. <laughs> what are you even talking about, Pat? Well, let me yeah. explain. Some of you may remember that we have talked about the Doctor Who role-playing game from the mid-1980s on this show before. Well, as an extrusion uh, from that game, there were two solo play adventure novels based on the FASA role-playing system. What does this mean? Well, uh, if you remember your Choose Your Own Adventure games or your Fighting Fantasy games or your Lone Wolf Adventure games from the 80s, this was a book that you would pick up and you would have a pair of dice and you would roll up a character, except you don't do that, and I'm just kind of talking right now. (laughs) But the idea is that this is a book that you play through one or more times and see the different branching storylines of what you do as the doctor until you get a good result or a bad result, and I'm just now, I'm just kind of failing now, Essentially, listeners, it's a choose-your-own-adventure book, only it incorporates dice rolls. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) I think think it maybe uh, keeps the reader from cheating, in, in a sense, we're like, well, like, well, what if I do this? And you read a little bit of the paper. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, go back. Well, these books here. that have mechanisms in them, that have game mechanisms in them, tend to be a little bit more complex. You're not turning to page fifty, whatever. You're mm-hmm. turning to paragraph fifty, whatever. And so the, you know, a book of this size, which might have. Um, almost 400 pages in it might have double that number or or more of paragraphs that you can turn to with a consequent number of... It was a lot denser than I remember yeah. Choose Your Old Adventure books being. And this is typical for something like Ian Livingston's Fighting Fantasy books, yeah. uh, which is 
even more complex than what we're talking about right now mm-hmm. and outside the scope of the show. Uh, but here, uh, this uses a reduced version of the FASA Doctor Who role-playing system to um, allow you to make choices based on what your skills are or where you want to go. You're, you're not just making binary choices, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a section in here where you decide, I'm going to go to this level on the elevator mm-hmm. because I've got an information that says... Harry and Sarah are here mm-hmm. or I, that this other thing is here. And so you choose to go to those places and then uh, consequent choices arise from that. So first, first, I say, <laughs> there's a regeneration mechanic. I, got, I, I saw I, that and I got really alarmed. <laughs> I have to point this out first because think about Doctor Who in general. There's nowhere else maybe in Doctor Who does the Doctor regenerate in the middle of a story and mm-hmm. keep going. There's Legopolis to Castrovelva, but even then the story of Legopolis finishes as the fourth Doctor dies and then he goes into Castrovelva. The master storyline is ongoing, but that's, it's really kind of a separate thing. Then there's that weird uh, David Tennant fake regeneration in The Stolen Earth. I don't think it was even really counted as a real regeneration no. until the night of the Doctor where they regenerated into Peter Capaldi. So I don't – so this is the first occasion where I can think of where – you are the doctor. You die. Your statistics change, but otherwise everything is exactly the same and you keep going on. Yeah, it's you have, a, have a temporary loss of stats, mm-hmm. like a post-regenerative phase. and for, then you can, For a certain number of goes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you can get back and up. Why this is a death zone, you guys, is because Joshua and Kelvin and I all ran through... Doctor Who and the Vortex Crystal in our own separate ways, and we all had different results. So what we're going to do is judge which one of us had the best result. So, Josh, would you like to give kind of a broad strokes thing of what happened to you? Okay, so as I mentioned in our Silence in the Library round, I read the wrong comic book and only realized that this afternoon before the recording, so I had to go back, read the other comic book, and then realized I still have to get through this <laughs> game, which I was really excited to play. So uh, this was a couple hours before we got together, and so I started this, I will admit, intentionally making reckless choices, or what I deem to be reckless choices, because mm-hmm. you have these options where you can either go a circuitous route to a tower, or you can go back to the TARDIS, or you can just go straight ahead. There's another spot, I don't know if you guys hit it, where Harry Sullivan finds a submachine gun, and mm-hmm. you can choose to either let him have it or not, and I'm like, sure, let Harry Sullivan have a submachine gun. i got to record in two hours. <laughs> it was very hard to get Harry to drop that gun. I was not able to do it. See, I didn't even try to cheer. I ignore it. Um, but then the story started moving, and I lost track of the fact that I was crunched for time and I started getting really engaged with it by the time you got into the Dalek ship. I don't know if you guys made it into the Dalek ship yep. or not. Um, and there's a mechanism for exploring different rooms in the Dalek ship. And I don't know if it was my game playing and not understanding it or a failure in the mechanism, but I got in this sort of loop in the Dalek ship where I kept going back to the same rooms and it kept directing me until I reached the bridge of the Dalek ship and I tried to run away again, but it kind of forced me back into the Dalek bridge again, so I went, okay, obviously this game doesn't want me to run away again, so I surrendered 
and the Dow shot me immediately. <laughs> and then it gave me the option to regenerate. And, and so I rolled and lost by one Wow, I'm, one number, and I, I'm died. so I'm so sorry that happened to you. <laughs> and that was it. That it was, took me about your six, sixty minutes. Okay, yep. right. it was about my time through a little less, fifty some minutes. But I, I would like to share with listeners how cruel it is. This is the final passage after my failed regeneration. It says, "You are dead. What's worse, Harry and Sarah will also probably be dead soon if they're not already. Still worse." Forces that you have glimpsed only dimly during the course of this adventure will soon bring the entire universe to an end. Well, even Time Lords aren't perfect. <laughs> Perhaps in an alternate universe you'll manage better when once again you confront the Vortex Crystal. <laughs> so not only is it this terribly depressing thing where everything in the universe died, it also turns into a chipper commercial for the book you've already bought <laughs> when once again you encounter the Vortex Crystal. Well, that's very sad. <laughs> That's that's. I'm really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. That that was your experience. That's it. it, it that's it's a no. classic inept gamer story of like like I had I no I had the, had the terrible dice rolls. I had. Yeah. Oh, I missed it by one. Oh, I don't understand how this could go forward. So I've had these books since the '80s, since okay. the mid '80s, but I don't. I don't think I played them through thoroughly. Um, I can't tell you why. Um, it seems like exactly the sort of thing that I would have done. But uh, so this was essentially fresh to me. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to discover that there were interesting little gameplay subsections. You described one of them, the exploring the Dalek ship. Mm-hmm. There's a second one. There's the exploring the tower yeah. thing, which is uh, going up and down and choosing uh, which floor to get off on um, the elevator. Uh, now. If you're following the rules precisely as written, it doesn't quite work. It's it's you're just hitting random buttons on the elevator and going to places randomly. And I think that it sounds to me like there's something similar, uh, a similar problem in the Dalek ship yeah. that you're talking about. And so, well, that's people working out, you know, under deadline for uh, a book that's going to be released for the Christmas season. <laughs> like, uh, okay, let's just make up some kind of. Um, mechanism to to make these things happen but anyway i was the the point being that i was surprised at uh, a certain level of sophistication in the book mm-hmm. the other thing that i was surprised at was how continuity heavy it was yeah it really is uh, it wound up uh, and i'm spoiling this uh, not only are the daleks in there which isn't a surprise because they're on the cover this winds up being a sequel to the time monster what? I didn't even get close to that. Yeah. Uh, there's another Cronivore in there named Kali, and it, it references Day of the Daleks and maybe a couple of other Doctor wow. Who televised adventures that I missed. I, I was I get, very I surprised by that because your average kid reading this book in 1986 is not going to know any of that unless they picked it up from Peter Haining's Doctor Who Celebration. Well, I'm, I'm assuming it was um, aimed at British readers more than American Or readers. fans of the role-playing game. Yeah. Uh, and the role-playing game does have that sort of... Uh-huh. Uh, that sort of I, I, I did uh, write it down in my notes because I did run into a... There's a reference to Tom Tit. <laughs> I've, got, yes. I've got that right here. Tom Tit, Tom Tit, Calvin is my note. Yes. So, Calvin, did you succeed? Um, yes. Okay. Well, then hold on because I'll tell you how I failed first. Okay. Uh, I got further than Josh. Um, you're on this planet. You're separated from Harry and Sarah. 
and the Daleks eventually capture you. And for me, I didn't die there. Rub it in, Pat. <laughs> the Daleks were unusually solicitous. They're like, there are, is a weird time anomaly here, and you have to do this thing. And I'm like, screw you, Daleks. And then they're like, no, but it's in our best interests. And then we eventually worked out a deal. And uh, here's another interesting mechanism where over the course of this book, you have to record certain clues that you have. Yes. Like I have recorded clue C or I've mm. rec- uh, recorded clue D twice, yeah. that sort of thing. And eventually this gets to a point where you're going to roll and you're going to add a certain number of modifiers uh, based on the number of clues that you have. And that was uh, – and I succeeded in doing that and realizing, oh, I need to do this thing with the TARDIS. And then I went to a place where there were a bunch of douchebags worshipping the <laughs> Vortex crystal. Stole, and it turns out that there was a chronovore in there, and the chronovore was like, I'm going to destroy you mentally. And we had this big fight, mental fight, and I, you know, resisted it, and then we had a conversation, and then we had <laughs> another fight again, and then Kali, that's the name of the chronovore, we're pals now, uh, he destroyed my brain or I died. <laughs> and there was no possibility of regeneration, so I didn't use that mechanism, and then that was the end of things. That was my day, Kelvin. I took fairly extensive notes on what I did. I don't Eschatons, know how. Eschatons, the Eschatons. Eschatons, yes. <laughs> um, okay, the TARDIS lands. You're given the choice to investigate the hill. I investigate the hill. Harry goes up there, finds a gun. I convince Harry to put away the gun, and Harry Mobley does that. This uh, is maybe oh, wow. where everything went yeah, right I for just, Kelvin. Yeah, <laughs> one of us were able to do that. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, captors come by. And uh, so I, I willingly get arrested. They confiscate my little time anomaly sensing device and my sonic screwdriver and some other stuff. And we go along, and they take me to the Tower of the Masters, yep. whatever that is. I'm locked in a cell with a bucket and a cot and like and a light bulb on a, on a string-type light. Yep, I was yep. there. I did the same thing. And I successfully uh, handled my little role to like pull apart the... Uh, electric light thing and electrify the door and then go, ah, guard, help! And then the guard comes by and gets shocked into unconsciousness and I can escape. And uh, I take the guard guard's little key card. I go to the lift and uh, I went to level nine first, which is some sort of records department. Did you talk to the lady? I talked to the lady <laughs> who was like very polite but kind of weird and they said like, well, you know, like, you, you, you know, if you want more info on the tower, you probably should go to the Headquarters on level 31. So I went to level 31, and that's like military headquarters. And I'm like, oops, sorry. And I get immediately arrested. <laughs> and I am, I, I'm captive, and I'm now I'm shackled in, in, a, in a basement for, for several hours. Daleks show up. Ooh, oh my God. And the Daleks take me to their ship, which is in a, next to an underground lake because it's in a cave system. Yeah, yeah. Or something. They, they disguised it. Yep. And uh, the, the dogs tell me all about, the, you know, there's a weird time anomaly or something, and they're really scared of it because they don't know what it is, and there's some kind of weird synopsis of, like, the Dalek history of time travel. Yeah. And, uh, like, how far along they've gotten with it, and that they've managed to create, like, a probe to go into the vortex uh, to possibly detect TARDISes or something, and, and they're looking for some kind of doorway where they can go, like, conquer all of time, but instead they're shocked by some kind of immensely powerful thing they find in there. That could, like, suck everything out of the universe. So the Daleks wound up enslaving the population of this planet to kind of 
try and track down this time anomaly for us. Because, as one does. Because, yeah. because we're scared or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I get a clue for that and a couple other clues. And then they, they try to use the TARDIS. I bluff like, well, there's a defense mechanism on the TARDIS where Dalek, if Daleks are on it, it won't work. They're like, okay. So I managed to get in the TARDIS by, by myself. I dematerialize. I find this pinpoint of energy in the vortex. And there's a big trans-dimensional leak that I have to plug. And I rematerialize on a volcanic plane, and there is this junkyard of super ancient stuff, including, like, wrecked Daleks that seem to be thousands of years old. But there's also fresh tracks that the Daleks have made going up to, like, where the wrecked Dalek is. And and I realize, like, okay, they, they got sort of hyper... Time got hyper-accelerated there, and I go back in the TARDIS and find out that there was a slight change in uh, how time passed there, like... A, I felt like it was only out there a few minutes, but it was like in a longer period of time. Uh, da, 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 da. And then there's a Tom Tit reference I write down. Tom Tit, really big. <laughs> and I, I, I get all the clues together, and I need to roll, you know, the bonuses. That's a success. And I realize it's chronovores. Oof. And then I find the hidden crystal city, which is like hidden two and a half seconds in the future. Yeah. Which is why no one can see it. So I managed to go into the crystal uh, city. I go in the side door, not the main door. Uh, watch the watch the douchebags worshiping the time crystal. <laughs> blah blah blah. There's a synopsis about the time things. There's some kind of climax to the ritual. There's this super strong wind that starts blowing, and I fail my dex roll. And here I wrote down a note like I think they skipped something <laughs> because like suddenly it starts talking about Kali, and that hadn't been introduced in anything yeah, I'd read yeah. at that point. So I was like, did I miss yeah, something? There's some exposition paragraphs that looks. Like yeah, they... I missed some exposition stuff. I, I got the idea to use the TARDIS to warp space-time in the city. I'm in the TARDIS. It's getting beat up by horrible vortex forces. Uh, and I had to do TARDIS piloting skill rolls in a row with a, a negative modifier. I managed to make both of them. Nice, nice. So what happens is that the Crystal City gets put in a time loop. So Kali is now in a time loop and is trapped in there. And will never get out and never realize that Kali is experiencing the same five seconds of time over and over again. Uh... Go to where Sarah and Harry are, rescue them, and uh, that's it. I, wow, 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 that so sounds I, I, like a... So I saved the universe, but Harry and Sarah were barely in it. I think that's going to be the case no matter what. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a remarkable Doctor Who adventure. And yeah. I, well done, I, you know, Kelvin, yeah. you showed us up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was rolling well, and then uh, Kali destroyed my brain. Yeah. <laughs> So, you guys, we have spoiled the heck out of Doctor Who and the Vortex Crystal. I don't know. There's some exposition in there that I, that's hinted at that I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. You know, having had this book for, what, since 1986, I was surprised how much I thought it was pretty good. Had, had I done this in 1986, I probably would have loved the hell out yeah, of it. a lot of fun. Definitely truer to Doctor Who than the Pescatons. Yes. So truer to Doctor It's one of our new ratings. Better than the Pescatons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we established the Pescatons as the floor, and then we just build up from there. Well, Planet of the Dead, this, worse than the Pescatons. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the death zone, of course, and so I think Kelvin's run-through of this book is easily the best. So yeah, like, like literally in the, in the, in the final uh, paragraph... It includes the line, Nothing could be more satisfactory. Congratulations on a splendid victory. Kelvin. Does it actually say Kelvin in there? (laughs) I I, I wrote it in. (laughs) Well, that's it. That was our 50th 
episode. We've been doing this for approximately three years, and we're still enjoying it, and hopefully we will soon get back to uh, our more regular schedule. Uh, we, we did have a pretty busy summer, so we, we did tail off a bit there. We do apologize for our last 50 episodes. <laughs> we do apologize for our last 50 episodes of, of self-indulgent wankery. I regret nothing. <laughs> But, uh, no, really, we're, we're, we're glad you're out there. Please, well, you know, if you're out there, and I know you are, write us, write us a review on iTunes, uh, you know, give us a, a five-star rating. It really helps us get seen by other weirdos like yourselves who, who yeah. like the classic series of Doctor Who. And, and keeps us from the emotional brink. We, we know it's not a cold, uncaring universe. And and that gives us the energy to get through another day. So, was, was, was there anything else? <laughs> what are we doing next? I, 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 uh, only the cold winds of the abyss, Calvin. <laughs> Let's turn up the mic for that. <laughs> All of time has been destroyed, Doctor. The vortex winds are so The veil yard has conquered all. <laughs> Well, we could scream into the abyss what our next episode is going to be. We could. What is our next episode? <laughs> this is episode 51. This is Guy Clancy. Rebels Gambit. Uh, we can translate that from abyss speak into <laughs> podcast speak. Next time, in episode 51, we will have Scott Glancy as a guest again yeah. on our podcast. Uh role-playing game wizard he will be appearing with us and we will be discussing one of his favorite episodes of doctor who the talons of wang chiang oh boy yes and also we will be revisiting the doctor who solo role-playing books with the next one which is rebels gambit this is the second book in the series and the last so (laughs) we're gonna cover it so you you didn't get enough three middle-aged men talking about their role-playing game adventures that they had at home alone. We're going to have four middle-aged men talking about it next time. (laughs) (laughs) So until next time, I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Pat. (laughs) And we're saying, Get off my world! I did too. You can, you can tell Pat that he's full of shit at any moment. You can stand up. The mics will still pick you up. Stand up and just point at him. You son of a... <laughs> <laughs>